Would you let them know again? Eddie Hawks, the choir, the orchestra, the tech team, let them know how much you appreciate them. You know, it's always a unique time for me uh, to follow the choir orchestra because of just some earlier experiences I had as a young pastor. When with hoping to be impeccable timing, I would try to time the conclusion of the song as I was walking onto the platform. And I can't tell you the number of times when I'd get about halfway across and the song would start back up and I'd have to turn around and go right back to my seat, which was far better than the Sunday morning when, again, just trying with impeccable timing to get to the platform as quickly as possible. And I hurried up the stairs, at least halfway up the stairs. And then I fell right on my knees, right there before God, everybody, the whole church. And I got up, sort of, you know, brushed it off, shake it off. And, you know, reflecting back, I so wish, had I been, you know, older and smarter, I would have just stayed on my knees for a few, a few moments and just, yes, Lord, thank you, God. Bless this message this morning. But again, I wasn't as quick thinking uh, in those days. Well, it's good to have you tonight. Thank you for coming out on a rainy night. And uh, we welcome our online uh, crowd. Thank you for being with us. And I'm very excited about the message tonight, and I hope that uh, you're going to be motivated, inspired, compelled, really, by the time we get to the end of the message. Now, this is something that I've done the last couple of weeks at, at Lakeside, and so I figured I would try it on here tonight at the North Campus and uh, just share with you a story. Our Lakeside family knows that if I read a story and I do not laugh out loud, I just totally disregard the story, never look at it again, never use it again. However, if I read a story and I laugh out loud, there's a good chance at some point in the future it's going to be used. So I'm going to use one tonight, and let me just go ahead and tell you it has absolutely nothing at all to do with the message. And if you try to piece this story to the message, it's going to be incredibly frustrating for you. So don't even try, and I'll just share it with you. The story goes like this. Morris and his wife, Esther, went to the state fair every year, and every year Morris would say, Esther, I'd like to ride that helicopter. Esther always replied, I know, Morris, but that helicopter ride is $50, and $50 is $50. One year, Esther and Morris arguing again, went to the fair. Morris said, Esther, listen, I'm now 85 years old. If I don't ride that helicopter, I might never get another chance the rest of my life. Esther replied, Morris, as I've told you, that helicopter ride is $50, and $50 is $50. You got it? The pilot overheard the couple and said, Folks, I'll make you a deal. I'll take both of you up for a ride under one condition. If you stay quiet for the entire ride and not say, any, not say a word, I won't charge you a cent, not a cent. But if you say one word, even one word, it's $50. Morris and Esther agreed, and up they went. The pilot did all kinds of fancy maneuvers, but not a word was heard. He did his daredevil tricks over and over again, but still not a word. When they finally landed, the pilot turned to Morris and said, By golly, I did everything I could to get you to yell out, but you didn't say a word. I'm so impressed. Morris replied, well, to tell you the truth, I almost said something when Esther fell out, but you know, $50 is $50. That's a lot of money. Back in 1983, the year I was born, or somewhere around there, a movie was released And some of you may remember the movie. It's an oldie. The cast was made up of many up-and-coming stars at the time, Uh, common names now, but then they were just very young. Matt Dillon, Rob Lowe, Tom Cruise, uh, C. Thomas Howell, Emilio Estevez, Patrick Swayze, many of these guys were in this movie. And I can't fully remember the plot, therefore I don't want to recommend the movie, but I do know this, that the whole story seemed to evolve around a gang 
of tough, low-income kids, and there was a gang of wealthier kids from the other side of town, and there was a lot of conflict between the two. One of the gang members was called, if you saw the movie, and I don't know why this name stuck with me, but one of the characters in the movie was called Pony Boy. And I, I don't know why that name stuck with me, but I decided my brother at the time was 13 years old, and I decided that that would be a good name for my brother. So from that point forward, I just started calling him Pony Boy. Still to this day, over 30 years later, I may be talking to my sister-in-law on the phone if she answers, and then I'll say, you know, after we've talked a few minutes, how are the kids, what's going on, how are you guys doing, let me talk to Pony Boy. So he's still Pony Boy to this day, and for some reason, you know, I just sort of held on to that. But the title of this movie, and it really jumped out at me while I was working on this message, uh, the title of the movie was The Outsiders. You may or may not remember the movie. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul speaks actually of a different kind of outsider, and that passage is going to guide this message tonight. So let's go ahead and dive right in and make good use of the time that we have together. This is Paul talking. You're going to see it on the screen. Look at what he has to say. He says, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Look at this next part. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. We could have a message probably just on that, but we're not going to do that tonight. And to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life is really, really, this is really the thesis, this is the essence of what we're going to talk about, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Our daily life, your life, my life, may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. Now, it's important for us to establish this right at the beginning that there were two primary things among followers of Jesus when this is written during New Testament days that exerted a powerful influence upon those who were outsiders. And I'm used to the term, you know, Christians were sort of the insiders and those who were outside of the kingdom of God. And the thing that caused there to be this amazing contrast, when you looked at the outsiders as compared to the insiders, it was this. What set them apart for those within the body of Christ, those in the kingdom of God, was the moral purity of their lives. Let me say that again, the moral purity of their lives. And then the second thing was the consistent practice of their love. Now, lest you think when this is written that these were sort of easy times, benign times. It wasn't really that difficult for Christ followers at this particular time. It was anything but that. You and I need to understand that this setting was in the middle of a very, this is important now, you'll need to keep this in mind, this was in the setting of a very hostile pagan environment. It was not popular to be a Christian at this time in this particular region, and it was certainly not comfortable to be one. And Paul basically, as he's speaking to these followers of Jesus in Thessalonica, he is saying to them basically this, a dual message, avoid any kind of behavior that could bring shame, disrespect, reproach to Jesus or to Jesus' gospel or to his church. And furthermore, instead of offending, this is really important, instead of offending those outsiders, why don't you go ahead and win them instead? Instead of offending them, why don't you win them for Jesus' sake. Uh, not too terribly long ago, I came across this story. What is a Christian is posed early in the story, and then 
the reference, it's a letter to Dionetus, which dates back to the second century B.C. Anonymous writer describes in that time, second century B.C., a strange people who were in the world but not of the world. And listen to how they describe these people. Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, by language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect. They live in both Greek and foreign cities wherever chances put them. They follow local customs in clothing and food and the other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the unusual form of their own citizenship. You see, they live in their own native lands, but as aliens. Every foreign country to them is is as their native country, and every native land as a foreign country. These Christians marry and have children just like everybody else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are passing their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They uh, They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everybody, but are persecuted by all. They're put to death, and yet they gain life. They're poor, and yet make many rich. They're dishonored, and yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened, and yet they're cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. They are treated outrageously, and yet they behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they're punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if given new life. They're attacked by Jews as aliens and are persecuted by Greeks. Yet those who hate them cannot give any viable reason for their hostility. And Paul knew the people that he was writing to. He knew their circumstances. He knew that they could either live for themselves, which really, uh, to be honest with you, would be quite easy at that time. They could personify a life that would be marked by anger because there was so much negativity that was headed in, so much uh, persecution, so much hate, so much violence, and they could have just drawn lines in the sand and said, well, if that's how it's going to be, then I'm going to allow my life to be dictated you know, by anger, by hostility. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hate back. Uh, maybe they could have said, well, you know, it's so tough, and, you know, God's not really looking out for me. Why, could I, why should I give consideration to God? So I'll allow some, maybe some questionable moral practices to become a part of my life. I'll enter into passivity. I'll compromise. Why does it matter? Look at all that we're going through. Or instead, they could do what they actually chose to do, many of them, to be known for their love, to be known for their care, to just say, hey, irrespective of what is happening to us, we're going to be people of compassion, and we're going to be people of kindness and peace, and we're going to be busy about doing acts of good. I read this as well around the same time that I read what I just read to you previously. This writer, Greg Laurie, by, by the way, some of you have heard that name, great pastor out on the West Coast. He said from some research that he had done that the first Christians didn't out-argue pagans, they outlived them. It is worth noting that Christianity made no attempts to conquer paganism and dead Judaism by reacting blow by blow. Instead, the Christians of the first century outthought, outprayed, and outlived the unbelievers. Their weapons were positive, not negative. As far as we know, they did not hold protests or conduct boycotts. They did not put on campaigns to try to unseat the emperor. Instead, I love this, they prayed and they preached and they proclaimed the message of Christ, put to death on the cross, risen from the dead and ready to change lives. And they backed up their message with action and their actions was was portrayed in their giving and in their loving. It is interesting to me, really, when you get in sort of the context of everything that is playing out here, that in the ancient Near East, 
it would not be uncommon for an emperor to just establish that there would be an image of themselves set up in different places in the context of their territory. Wherever they wanted to be represented, it was commonplace that a, an image would be established so that you would see the image of this emperor. You would, you would be reminded of who the emperor was. And, and again, this was frequent in the domain in which you, which you exercise uh, your responsibility. That image would not only represent the king's dominion and authority, it would re represent him as a person. And you know, when you read about that and you think about that, at least for me, it cannot really escape my mind what we find in Genesis 1.27. It's not on the screen, but it tells us, and this is about uh, all of us, this is true for each and every one of us in the sanctuary tonight, that you and I, think about this now, have been created in the image of God. And we are now God's representatives in the territory in which we live. So it's not an image of an emperor in a pagan nation. It is us being images. We're the, we're the image bearers of Christ. We're his representatives here on earth. And so in the time that we have left tonight, here's what I want to do. I want to just walk you through how I believe, real practically, real pro, uh, pragmatically, how that you and I in our daily life can win rather than offend those outsiders, because how many of you know it's real easy to do either one? It's so easy to offend those who are outside of the kingdom of God, and I'm not, I'm not talking about people who are exercising irrational thinking. I'm just really putting the onus back on you and me. How could you and I live? And I'll just give you three things, and we'll be done. First of all, you may want to write this down somewhere. Get it on your note page or your tablet, your phone. Number one, it's real simple. Let them see authentic love. Let outsiders see authentic love. Now, when you and I think about love in our current reality, its meaning, when you really stop and contemplate it, its meaning is so empty and diluted. Most of us recognize quite easily conditional love. Conditional love goes something like this. Here's what I'll do. I will love you if you somehow prove to me that you are worthy of my love. Or it looks like this. I will love you if you love me, but if not, forget it. You don't love me. I don't love you. You love me. I love you. And it's totally conditional love. Now, you take it beyond the conditional love to what we might would call situational love, and it's more difficult to identify, actually. Quite often, conditional love is only recognized and discernible after the fact, and generally plays out something, although it's much broader than this, this would be maybe an example. A guy plays the love card to convince a girl to go against her intrinsic conviction of putting marriage before sex. Our friend or a family member loves someone as long as money and assets are in play. Situational love. But then Paul says to this group of believers who is faced with incredible obstacles, all kind of pressure, all kind of persecution, all kind of hate and violence, and he says right in the middle of this, he says to them, again, this is not an easy road for them, he says, but this is not to be true of you. You bear the image of a God that has perfected love. It's what I wanted to be manifested in your life. I want you to be known by your love. A lot of you are familiar with this statement by Gandhi. It's really tragic when you think about it. You know, his influence was used in totally different ways. But this is what Gandhi said. Have you ever seen this statement before? He said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Oh, man, I just pray that that would never be said of any of us. Hey, I, I like your Christ. I like your Jesus, but I, 
I'm not really a big fan of your Christians because you're really not a whole lot like Jesus. And how do we prove that we're so much like Jesus? Paul would say, you know, how you do it, you manifest it in your love. You let them see outsiders. You let them see authentic love. You let them see that. So his followers manifesting authentic love was so important, not just to Paul, but to Jesus. It was such a serious matter to Jesus that Jesus actually puts this whole idea in the form of a new commandment. It's like this. It's like Jesus is saying, you know all the other commandments? And they're like, yeah, know all the other commandments. You know all those other commandments are really important? They're like, yeah, we know all of those other commandments are, are really important. You know it's serious. We know it's serious business. Then this is what Jesus said. By the way, here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you a new commandment to add to all the other important ones. And this is it. It's out of John's gospel. He said, and now I give you a new commandment, love one another. That's your new commandment. Love each other. Love each other as I've loved you. So you must love one another. And if you have love for one another, this really important, you got to see this phrase. This is Jesus now. This is not Paul. This is Jesus. He said, if you have love for one another, then everyone will know what? Read the rest of it with me, everybody. Then everyone will know that you are my disciples. So it's not really what you're saying. It's how you're loving. And the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Secondly, not only letting them see authentic love, because we're talking about winning outsiders, not offending outsiders. So secondly, follow Jesus into humility. Follow Jesus into humility. Now, this is going to be such an easy softball toss. It's not a high and tight fastball. This is real easy for us to respond to. Uh, This kind of behavior, which I'm about to mention, will this offend or win outsiders? So just, I'll say it, and then you think about it again. It's an easy softball toss. Do you think you and I win or offend outsiders if we put ourselves on the level of a superior spiritual person? To say, you know what, maybe we don't say it, you know, in these exact words, but we at least put off this sort of feeling, this air about us. It's the air of saying, you know what, I know more, I pray more, I sacrifice more, I read more, I do more than most other Christians. Does that offend or does it win? Or how about this one? You know what, I've been around church a long, long time. I've been around Christians a long time. Preachers are a lot longer than you have, by the way, outsiders. So I have a more competitive advantage over you. And by the way, by the way, outsiders, do not do what I do. Do what I say or do what I believe. I like this uh, pastor. He, uh, he's sort of retired in the last couple of years, but I like reading his books because Tim Keller really challenges my thinking. He makes me just pause, and I read something. All right, time out. i got to really think this through. In a book of his that I read not too long ago, this is a statement that he makes. He says, think of people you consider fanatical. They're overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why, he asks. It's not because they're too Christian. He says, it's because they're not Christian enough. They're fanatically zealous and courageous, but they're not fanatically humble or sensitive or loving or empathetic, forgiving or understanding as Christ was. Because they think, Keller says, of Christianity as a self-improvement program, they emulate the Jesus of the whips in the temple, but not the Jesus who said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and to his gospel. 
Paul writing to another group of believers, and you're going to see this up on the screen, this time not to believers living in Thessalonica, but this time believers living in Philippi, and it's this whole idea that he's trying to express to them, and he says, you know, this whole idea of humility and winning outsiders. He said, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. A lot of you are familiar with this passage. Though he was God, though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And it's still striking to me how Jesus came into the world had you and I been in that position and we've been, you know, been mentioned to us from God, hey, you know, I'm about to send you into this sin-stained, messed up, broken world. It's not the way that I intended, and you're going to come, and you're going to die, and you're going to redeem. And by the way, how would you like to gain entrance into this world? And that question had been posed to us. How many of you know that we would have chosen something entirely different than the manner in which Jesus came into the world? I'd been like, Jesus, I want to go 747 first class, you know, out, out frills and... I, but Jesus humbled himself. And if you and I are really going to influence, and I've, I've got to believe it, and I pray it so, I believe it so, I hope it's so, that for every one of us, we're not just thinking about the life that we're caught up in, you know, each and every day, but we're just saying, you know, what about those who are far from God? What about these family members that I have that are far from God? What about these friends that I have and that are far from God? What about the people that I work with? What about the people I'm taking classes with? And, you know, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but there are outsiders, and I'm inside, and I know that I have a reserved spot in heaven, but they don't. And, and, you know, how can I influence them? How can I, instead of just living a life that is offensive to them, how can I live a life that is winsome to them? How can I live my life in such a manner that they would want to know and love and serve and live obedient to this same Jesus that I call Lord? You see, our daily life will never win the respect of outsiders if we're sanctimonious or if we're judgmental or if we're proud. In fact, our rush to condemn and judge will only, think about this, will only bring God's judgment to our doorstep. I've heard Pastor Blackburn say this, or a variation. It's pretty close. It may not be verbatim, but it's, it's this idea of one day when I stand before God, I would rather stand before God because I've demonstrated too much grace rather than too much judgmentalism. How about you? I think that's a good word from our pastor. I'd rather stand before God saying, you know, uh, you know God say, Jeff, you were just a little bit too heavy on the grace side. And why does that matter? Read this verse with me. Everybody, let's read it together. This is Luke 14, 11. Will you read this with me? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to look at these next two verses. This is Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard that you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And I don't want to take a lot of time to really, um, you know, go this direction. I want to keep us on track. But, you know, while working on this message, I was thinking about this. Since my early days in ministry, whenever I'm in the orbit of somebody that is highly judgmental, I not only become quite frustrated by that, I don't mind telling you that, I have a tendency, just because of previous experiences maybe, to lean toward curiosity and suspicion. And I think I can remember where it all got started. I was a youth pastor many, 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 many years ago now. 
And I was in this church, and for some reason, there was this older guy in the church, and he just wanted to be so, so impressive spiritually. It just came off inauthentic. And I'm like, wow, you know, he's just, he's like in overtime. He's like doing, and, you know, and I, I didn't question that. Again, I didn't, I didn't want to be his judge, but I'm like, man, it's like he's really trying to hammer. It's like he's really trying to be convincing how spiritual he is, you know, um, you know how his life is. And it's like he's just over the top, just trying to make it a point. And it just came off, really, that uh, he was like better than most Christians in the church that I was at. And, you know, and judgmental and this person who does this. And it was always this person and this person and this person. And I'm like really young and I, I don't have all this sorted out. I just knew that it causes some discomfort in me. And I'm like, wow, why do you have to even do that? You know what my thinking was? My thinking was, why don't you just live the life and not talk about everybody else? Anybody wave at me if you know where I'm going. Why don't you just live the life? You don't have to convince me. You know, I'll just, I'll see the authenticity of your life. You know, it really matters how. And, you know, it was only sometime later that this guy who was so judgmental of everybody else that the skeletons come walking out of his closet. And I'm like, okay, I get it now. It, it was, he had to prove something. He had to pretend to be something that really he was not. Craig Rochelle, a lot of you have heard this name. Look at what he has written. This will make us think a little bit. He said, have you noticed that we tend to judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions? Leave that out for just a moment. That may be one of those. I know at late side because it's dark in there. Anytime there's a quote or a scripture or something like that on the screen, it, it's like, I just see flashes. In the, it feels sort of like paparazzi. I'm, I'm, and then I really know it's the screen. And that may be one of those you want to take a, you know, why is it that we tend to judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions? Please listen, friends. God is totally capable. I assure you of this. Fundamentally, I can stand confidently on this truth that God is totally capable of fulfilling his own divine responsibilities. He does not need you or me competing for his job. How many of you know that's the truth? James 4.12 says it this way. God is the only lawgiver and judge. He alone can save and destroy. Who do you think you are? to judge someone else. Man, I've tried to just keep that because I'm so far from getting it right in my own life. And anytime I just want to feel any kind of judgmentalism trying to bubble up within me, I just go back to this thought. Who do you think you are to judge somebody else? Leave that up to God. And God doesn't need my help to do that. So how can we live our daily life in such a way that it will win rather than offend those who are outsiders? Let me give you one more, and then we'll wrap up by consistently putting on display the fruit of the Holy Spirit, by consistently. I know that's simple, and you're like, wow, I know that. Why would you even bother saying it? Because, you know, it's important. It's critically important by constantly putting on display the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm strange in this way. I like going to the grocery store. You may not like going to the grocery store. I like going to the grocery store. And my favorite part of it, you know, when you're like in a really, really great grocery store, my favorite part is like the produce department. I love the produce department. 
I love looking at all the various fruits, the color of them, where do they come from, what's organic, what's not organic, and I just look at the produce department, and I'm like, wow, that, you know, that, those peaches, because I'm from Georgia, all right, those peaches look really good. How many of you know God created peaches in Georgia? Georgia Bulldogs, that's a whole other story we don't have time for tonight, all right? And I'll look, and then, you know, apples and oranges and red grapefruit, which I love, and, and you see all this pineapple. I love pineapple, and I see, and I just look, and I'm like, even things I'm not putting in the shopping cart, I'm just, wow, that, that looks good. That looks tasty. And, and, you know, and then you think about it. That looks so much better than the leftover fragments that are in the dumpster. You know, look in the dumpster, look at the fruit. What looks better? Look at the scraps left over in the meat department. What looks better? That, no, it's the fruit. And there's something about when you and I manifest the fruit, the likeness. It's really the likeness of Jesus. It's God's image being born in us. I want you to read these two verses with me, and I want us to read them slowly if we could. And I know you've read over them a, a hundred times. You've heard them preached uh, even maybe more times, but just read them together slowly with me. Are you ready? And just think about how can you really make them more applicable in your life? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And you know, when you and I see that, it ought to just prompt us really to do some personal evaluation. How am I doing in regards to that? Maybe as you think about that, maybe you'll go back and reread it this week. Maybe you'll read a lot of these passages in more detail than what we've had time to deal with them tonight. And you just look at that and just say, now, how am I doing there? Am I known? You know, when I think about where my life, who is intersecting with, where I work, the people I'm hanging around with, people in my own family, friends that I have, hey, would, would they say that I'm known for my love? Or if they could just sort of say it, in private, would they just say, hey, I don't really think love, I think bitterness, somebody that's filled with resentment. Would they look at us and say, you know, that is a person that they come in and they have joy. That is a joyful person. How many of you know joy is a great thing to have as a follower of Jesus? And it is so important for those outside of the kingdom of God to see that manifest in our life. Are we known for our joy or our despair? Are we known for our peace or are we known for our unrest or conflict that everywhere we go, there's a cloud of dust and conflict that follows us? Are we known for our patience? This is what Paul's talking about, our impatience. Are we known for just being kind or does people look at us and say, well, you know, they're a good person, love, not trying to, to, uh, to uh, judge them, but kindness, not really the word that comes to me, rude, capital R, rude, ruthless, all that. That's how I know them. Pray that that would not be so. Are we known for our goodness? Or is the flip side of that evil, vile? Are we known as being faithful? Or would people look at us and say, I can't, I can't really trust them a whole lot. Paul said, be known by your gentleness. Is that what is descriptive of our life? Or would somebody just say, hey, I, you know, I would never say it in front of them, but they're, they're pretty harsh. Are we known for our self-control? Or would it be said of us that we're more self-indulgent? It's a very easy call. When you really stop and think about it and look through it, and I trust that you'll do so. We only have a few moments to have done this tonight, but what is it that offends? And what is it that wins? Because all of those that are standing outside of the kingdom of God tonight, they matter a whole lot to God. 
And I know deep down that they matter a whole lot to you. And how are you and I going to reach them? We're going to reach them in how we live and how we love. One more verse and we're done. John 15, 8. I love this verse. This is Jesus. Jesus said, you give glory to my Father when you produce a lot of fruit and therefore show that you really, really are my disciple. Paul and the Bible and God tells us again and again, not just in the passages that we have looked at in these few moments tonight, but throughout the Scriptures, that those who choose to live a Jesus life-like, that they'll live it in such a way that those who are currently on the outside would see something. Listen, this is where it really comes down to. Would see something in your life that would be such that they'd say, you know what, I want to be just like them. I'm standing out, but man, they have that kind of life. I want that kind of life. And that they, because they see so much of Jesus in us, they would just say, you know what, I don't know what it's going to take, but I want to live that way. And so you and I, we have to do our part. I have to do my part. And what is it? as we wrap up, that needs serious and immediate attention, and I'll leave you with this, to commit ourselves to living a life of authentic love. One day, you know, we don't like to think about it, but somebody's going to conduct our funeral service. It's true. I'll do a funeral service tomorrow morning in, in uh, Savannah, Georgia. You get in my car, drive there tonight. And somebody's going to stand at your service and mine, and I pray that in a that setting, they'll say, well, you know what was so true about them? Man, they loved. They loved God. They loved people. There was something that was so contagious about their love that I want to live that kind of life for the rest of my life. So commit yourself to living a life of authentic love. Here's another thing. It's what we talked about. Pursue, pursue humility and reject all forms, every form of arrogance and judgmentalism. And then let the Holy Spirit's fruit be so on display in your life that people will want what you and I have. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You stand with me tonight for a closing prayer. And as you're standing, I want you to look at one last thought. Don't even know who the author of this is. But, man, it is striking to me. Look at it. The guys are going to put it right here on the screen. Look at this. Live so that when you tell someone that you're a Christian, it confirms their suspicions instead of surprises them. How many of you know that's a good way to live? Then when they find out we're a Christian, they're like, yeah, I knew that instead of what? What? Really? I pray that for you. Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for this wonderful church family that came when the weather was so, so inclement. It would have been easier to have not been here. I know that. They know that. God, you always give us your best, and thank you for so many that gave it their best to be here tonight. God, we just want to be more like you. I can't speak for anybody else here. I have so much work to do. I get so frustrated with myself so often. I want to manifest the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I want my life to influence those that are outside. God, help us to just all of us that are here tonight, part of our church family, to covenant with you and to covenant with each other, that we'll live that kind of life so that the outsiders... We'll look in, and they'll know that we're real, and they'll know we're authentic, and they will say, that's how I want to live my life. We pray that tonight.
in Jesus' name. Can we give Jesus a hand clap of praise in this place tonight? He is indeed worthy of all glory and all honor. And how many of you are glad God gives a second and third and fourth and fifth chances? And he said, you may have messed up. You know what? Tomorrow's a new day. Here's what I've come to realize. I can't do anything about yesterday, but I can do something about tomorrow and the day after that. And so can you. Worship team's going to lead us for just a few moments. And uh, if you need prayer tonight, whatever it is, something in your job, something that you need in your body, healing, a relation, whatever it is, before we leave this place tonight, would you come? And then I'll walk back up and give a benediction in just a couple of moments. You can come. And we'll be happy to pray with you right here at the altar.
Can we just put our hands up like this tonight? Can we do that as we wrap up? Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for helping us. Thank you that you divinely refuse to give up on us. When we go back into the workplace tomorrow, when we go back in wherever we're going to be with friends or fellow employees, coworkers, God, that you would just be so visible within us that people would really want what we have. And what we have is you. Be with us tonight, God. Give your people an awesome week. Bring us back to your house Wednesday night. We love you so much. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name. God bless you, everybody. Love you. Have an awesome week.